0: invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 13. We are in a series called Following Jesus. <clears throat> in the gospel of Matthew, and we've discovered that Matthew is a gospel built around five sermons of Jesus, contains more of the words of Jesus than any of the other gospels, and is sometimes therefore called by New Testament scholars, the, gospel, the discipleship gospel, the gospel of teaching or the teaching gospel because of this focus and the number of sermons. We know that there's at least five major discourses that he built his gospel around because after all five of these, they end with something like these kind of words. After Jesus finished speaking these things or after Jesus finished speaking or saying these things, that's Matthew's clue that, okay, that particular discourse has ended. The theme of all five of the sermons in Matthew is discipleship, what it means to be a true disciple, namely this, that regardless of what we say, you cannot follow Jesus any way you want. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, don't be deceived, there is another Jesus, there is another Spirit, and there is another gospel. In other words, counterfeits abound, counterfeits are all around us. Just because someone says they believe in Jesus or worship Jesus, just because somebody is on TV smiling and holding a Bible and saying, you know, they're preaching Jesus, that doesn't mean it's the Jesus of the Bible. The question is, what Jesus are you believing in? And Jesus was very clear. He made very extreme claims about who He was and what He demanded, and His point was you can't just follow Him any way you want if you want to be a true disciple, if you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to make sure you're going to be with Him for all eternity. We must come on His terms. That's His point. And in Matthew chapter 13, we come to the third sermon of Jesus. <clears throat> This one is a little different. This one contains a number of stories He told. Now, judging by the five sermons in Matthew, although Jesus used stories, they were not His norm. I've heard some people indicate, oh, yeah, that's how Jesus normally taught with stories. That's not true. If you look at His sermons in the, in the, in the Gospels, He did not normally use stories. He, he used illustrations. This is a collection of a number of stories He did tell. So, He, he did use stories. And here we have several. So, I'm going to, there's several here. I'm taking the first and the longest, and that's going to be our, because all all of these stories in Matthew 13 have the same theme, discipleship. And today, we're going to look at the parable of the sower. As Pastor Doug said, that's really a misnomer. I'll tell you why in a second. It's the longest of the stories, and it's a story about who is a real disciple and who is a counterfeit disciple. Hence, the title of the sermon, who is the real thing? That's what Jesus is clarifying here. Uh, I was looking at something that John Piper wrote this week about Matthew, and uh, John Piper is not only a popular pastor and writer, he also is a New Testament scholar. He got his doctorate at the University of Munich uh, in New Testament years ago, and he says this about Matthew's gospel specifically. He says, Matthew seems unusually burdened to alert us about the danger of thinking we're saved when we're not. So, as Piper looks at Matthew's gospel and compares it to the other gospels, again, he says, Matthew seems unusually burdened to alert us about the danger of thinking we're saved when we're not. And that certainly comes out in Matthew chapter 13. So, we're going to see three things in verses 1 through 23, and it is this. First, a parable about a farmer. Secondly, the purpose of parables. And then thirdly, the purpose, or, or the parable explained. So first of all, parable about a farmer. when we began the series we learned that the target audience for most of Jesus' preaching, at least the primary target audience, was His disciples. But, as any preacher knows, others are listening, I can never assume everybody in front of me is saved, no matter how large or small the group, I'm always aware I easily could have unconverted people in front of me, in fact, I probably almost always do. Don't even ever assume that everyone in your small group or your community group or your youth group or your, you know, are, are saved. There is differing levels of understanding, and some people get confused on what the gospel is, some people think they believe when they don't. So Jesus is very clear, and He, as He preached, realized, obviously, that there were the committed in front of Him, but also, we told, the crowd. There's actually three groups Matthew draws our attention to when Jesus preached, the religious leaders. His disciples, disciples being more than the twelve, those that were committed followers, religious leaders, disciples, and then the crowd. Matthew keeps using that terminology, the the crowd. And this sermon in particular seems aimed more at the crowd, unlike the other four. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. That's the position of authority and teaching. In fact, if you see a synagogue, there's some synagogues still left ruins of synagogues in Israel, the one I'm I'm thinking in particular in Chorazin, uh, still has the Moses seat sitting there. That's the seat of authority. So, the rabbi would sit, the people would stand. So, this is the position of teaching and authority. He he sat by the sea, great crowds gathered around him. So, then he got into a boat and sat down. So, he he pushed out a little bit further into the Lake of Galilee, and then he sat down again, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So there you have the normal, so if we we were a synagogue today, I I would be sitting in my nice chaise recliner, my pulpit, my my, my pastoral chaise recliner, and you'd be standing. In fact, in Orthodox churches today, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, very common for the whole congregation to stand through much or all of the service. All right, as with most of the parables, Jesus uses familiar things. In this case, He uses the story of a farmer sowing seed. That's basically the story. farmer goes out, you can picture him, he's got a bag of seeds, and he's reaching in and he's throwing these seeds out. I'm going to re- read again verses 3 to 9, just so that we're clear on the story. He told them many things in parables, saying, uh, a sower went out to sow, so a farmer went out to plant, That's, think of that, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path the birds came and devoured them. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and thorns grew up and choked them. So, those seeds also sprouted but the thorns choked them out. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. All right. So the essence of this, just to be clear, as you see verses three through nine, the focus of the story is what? It's not the farmer. The focus of the story, it's a word that's repeated here several times, is the soil. The soil. This is really the parable of the soil. In fact, I years ago. I actually preached, I did a series in the parables in one of my other churches and I got to this chapter and I called the sermon, What Kind of Dirt Are You? (laughs) Just be a little provocative, what kind of dirt are you? And the point is there's four kinds of soil mentioned here and the question to us is, are we the real thing? Are we the right kind of soil where the gospel is going to take root and grow and become established or are we one of the other three kinds? So that's the essence of it. It's really the parable of the soils. The story about a farmer planting his seed. It's pretty basic, it's pretty straightforward. That brings us to verses 10 to 17. If you're newer with us, we just walk through the text, try to f- make sure we're understanding exactly what God is saying, because we believe it is God's inspired word, right down to the smallest stroke of a letter in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and then through our English translations. And so now, we'll come to verses 10 to 17 where Jesus is going to show us or tell us about parables, why He uses them, and He's going to quote from Isaiah the prophet as his rationale. Matthew calls this story a parable. Verse 10, the disciples came and said, why do you speak to them in parables? It's, just, it's actually just a transliteration of the Greek word parabole. The New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, par- using parables was common in Jewish teaching. There's parables in the Old Testament. parable by design has meaning that is not necessarily obvious. You might think of them a little bit like a political cartoon. They're not always obvious to everyone looking at it, right? Especially if you've ever seen a political cartoon in another culture. That's always interesting uh, to look at it and, and you have like sometimes like zero idea of what, why this is so funny. It's bad enough even in our own culture sometimes, you're like, well, I don't get this. It, it, that, you know, it's not a complete analogy, but it gives you a little bit of an idea. parable is something that needs some interpretation. It's not necessarily obvious. The question is, why did Jesus speak in parables? We get His answer, verses 10 to 15. The disciples came and said, so why do you speak to them in parables? And He answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the ones who have, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, here we got a reference to Isaiah, is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And dull here doesn't mean dim-witted or dumb. It means hard or unable to penetrate through. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Interesting quote. Paul, by the way, also quotes from this passage in Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah 6, "By the way, not the Hebrew, but from the Septuagint version." But Paul quotes the same section in Acts chapter 28. Now Isaiah, the original context for this, if you're familiar, maybe not Isaiah the prophet wrote 700 years before Jesus arrived on this planet, and God told Isaiah he gave him very interesting. Kind of call to ministry, which was essentially, look, I'm calling you to go preach to my people. I want you to preach powerful sermons. I want you to preach anointed sermons, and I want you to do this passionately. He didn't tell them for how long, but it went on for almost 40 years. And then he said, oh, by the way, uh, nobody's going to listen to you. Go forth. Very similar charge to Jeremiah the prophet. So, just because somebody gets up, opens a Bible, and preaches faithful sermons, even if they're anointed, or have what the Puritans called unction, they has the divine power of the Spirit, doesn't mean that there's going to be revival. That's up to God. God is providential. God is sovereign. He decides who and where He's going to open blinded eyes. So, Jesus tells them that's, that's why He speaks in parables. In other words, parables are designed, let me put it a different way to do two things, to reveal truth and to conceal truth. You say, why why would God do that? Well, God has His ways only known to Him. Just because the gospel goes out and truth goes out, it is always doing one of two things. It's not just neutral. It is either softening or hardening by design, by design. Truth is revealed to those who are receptive to God, and then truth is concealed from those who are unresponsive to God as a form of judgment, and so the Word of God does not always soften. The Word of God is also hardening. It's doing both every time Scripture is preached, taught on, declared, or shared. Verses 16 and 17, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So now He's telling His disciples, you're blessed because God has sovereignly opened your ears and eyes. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and they did not hear it." So that is the purpose of parables. It all goes back to Isaiah. It's interesting in Isaiah's prophecy, and Isaiah's book, the people said very similar things to what you would hear today. They told Isaiah, look it, stop telling us about the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear about the holiness of God anymore. We want to hear pleasant things. Tell us nice things. Tell us about the gospel of be nice. Don't tell us about the Holy One of Israel. No different than today. No different than today. We have churches filled with the gospel of be nice, but there's no shred of the gospel there. The exalted gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ declared the holiness of God, the love of God, and how they came together on the cross. All right, now, the parable is explained. Verses 18 and following, Jesus tells the story, takes His disciples aside, and He begins to explain to them, here's the bottom line, the story is about the human heart. That's what this is about. Specifically, four different responses of the human heart to the gospel. So Jesus now describes four different responses when sinners hear the good news. The, 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 the different phrases are my own terminology. They, they're not called this in the New Testament. I'm just going to refer to them this way. The first heart he describes or the first kind of soil, I'm just calling is the unresponsive soil, or you could call it the hard soil or the hard heart or the unresponsive heart. But that's what he's describing in verse 18 and 19. So, four kinds of responses to the gospel, and this explains so much in life, by the way, so much in life, when you're sharing the gospel or hearing the gospel or seeing people's response to the gospel, whether immediately or down the road or years later, or lack of response, this parable explains a lot about evangelism and the sovereignty of God. So, first is the hard heart or the unresponsive heart, verses 18 Here 19. Hear then the parable of the farmer. When anyone… So, here's, here's the interpretation of the first soil… When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path, meaning a hard-packed ground path. So this is the hard-hearted individual, the unresponsive individual, indifferent, unmoved, cynical, the gospel doesn't even take root. It just kind of bounces off and away it goes. Several years ago, when we lived in Michigan, we had a family in our street, and unsafe family, and we became somewhat close to them. They lived across the street, and we would do things. Or kids would uh, connect with their kids a little bit. Their kids would babysit for our kids. They were a little older. And the young man in particular I got a little bit close to and would have fun, and occasionally we hung out. even came to church once or twice. One day I took a walk with him. I'll just call him Bob. And I was, walking, and I thought, you know what? time to kind of present the gospel. So on this walk, I just kind of started laying out the gospel. I thought it was a masterful presentation, but uh, anyways, I was explaining the whole thing and he was very quiet and I'm just laying it all out and we get all done and I, I literally said, so do you have any interest in any of this? And he just said, nope, Is it. I mean, I just kind of kept walking and thought, is there something else coming? Nope, that's it, just nope, nope, no interest. He never showed any interest, nice kid, but he showed zero interest. Never showed any interest after that, never showed any interest years later in the gospel. Now, I, I hope and pray you got saved, I don't know, but as far as long as I ever knew him, there was zero interest. It wasn't even, a, wasn't even a question like, well, that's kind of weird, or that's kind of odd, or why would you say that, or, you know, or something. it was just, no, no interest, none, zero. That is, that's what Jesus is describing here. It's the, un, it's just the, 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 the seed of the gospel hits it and there's nothing, just nothing. Secondly, now the second and third have a lot in common. I'm calling the second one the superficial heart, and Jesus describes this response in verses twenty and twenty-one. For this was sown for that what was sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with what joy. There's some kind of a very positive, enthusiastic, even an emotional response to it. So this is, there's clearly this is different than the unresponsive heart, yet. He has no root in Himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately He falls away." So, what is this? Well, this is a, this is a response to the gospel, Jesus' own words here, it's received with joy, there's some level of enthusiasm, uh, it seems authentic, but in the end, it's not. There's no lasting repentance. There's no lasting follow-through, I and mean, he doesn't clarify, you know, what does he mean by lasting? Is this a week later, a month later, years later? But ultimately, it's, there's no lasting brokenness, contrition. In effect, there's no changed life over time. After an initial enthusiastic response of joy to the gospel, even with deep emotion, perhaps contrition, perhaps with tears, it's superficial, it's not real surrender, it's not deep within. And ultimately, it's not a legitimate conversion. When I was um, about 16, 17 years old, uh, I was in an active youth group in my home church, and we had a retreat one year. And some of you have been on retreats, some of your kids have been on retreats. This particular one, we went, and our pastor invited a friend of his who had been a pastor, and he came and he spoke. And it was very, very powerful. It had a huge impact on us. One of my friends, a female, a young gal, was apparently converted. In fact, it was one of the more dramatic conversions that I've ever seen, at least initially. And it had a huge impact on the youth group. It didn't just linger that night all the way through the rest of the weekend, on the way home, on the bus. Uh, at, I mean, it, it became the buzz of the youth group for a while, her conversion. Sadly, within less than a year, she'd walked away from the gospel, walked away from Christ, walked away from the church, and it remained that way. I never knew of her ever coming back to the Lord. And so you ask in that kind of a situation, what, what, what happened? Well, it's basically what Jesus is talking about here. Notice verse 21, question here is, what is it that derails this person's commitment to God? verse 21, notice what it says, tribulation or persecution against the Word. So, trouble, persecution, difficulties, life struggles, opposition in their own heart to the Word, whatever it is, the difficulties of life, persecution of life, tribulation, ultimately squelched out the Word. In other words, not all suffering leads us to God. Not all suffering leads us Back to God. Suffering tends to reveal what's inside. Suffering doesn't necessarily make or break us, and here it's very clear that suffering, especially tribulation, he doesn't clarify what kind necessarily, tribulations, trials, persecutions, troubles, difficulties, in this sense, chokes out the Word and that person's apparent conversion even one done with joy and excitement is snuffed out, and that feels like that's what happened at this particular youth group retreat. Third heart is what we might call the distracted heart, and here there's, there is overlap, okay? there is overlap. So the distracted heart, verse 22, for as what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches or wealth choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful." That's interesting. So this is a description of a person who initially shows, again, very great interest, there's initial enthusiasm. But question again, what is it that finally derails this person's commitment to God? Well, verse 22, "...as for what was sown among the thorns," this is the one who hears the word, the indication is it did take root. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulnesses choke out the word and ultimately it proves unfruitful. Notice the two things that Jesus specifically mentions, the cares or the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Some of you know the New Testament is written in Greek. That, that word can express both pleasure and deception. And the same word is translated, in fact, pleasure in 2 Peter 2.13 translated pleasure, same word. So, this is a person derailed by both worries and pleasure, specifically the pleasures of of wealth or the pleasures of possessions or toys in life. Here's the lesson, friends, listen. The bottom line here is Jesus is showing us that both pain and pleasure can keep people from God. He's telling us that in these in the second and third uh, uh, response, both pain and pleasure can keep people from God, and that is something worth reflecting on, because these two, these, the, these, the second and the third have a lot in common. Now, before we go on, let me draw a conclusion about the first three, because the first three, they do have a common theme. All three types of soil, all three, the unresponsive one, then the superficial one, and then the distracted one. All three have something in common, and that something they have in common is this, they're not genuine salvation experiences. They look, the first, the second, and third look like it, but ultimately they are not. Warren Wiersbe, some of you know the name, pastor for many years at Moody Memorial Church, great preacher, statesman. In his little book, Meet Yourself in the Parables, he says this, quote, of the first three soils, It is important to note that none of these first three hearts underwent salvation. The proof of salvation is not listening to the Word or having a quick emotional response or even nurturing the Word so that it grows in life. The proof of salvation is fruit. For as Christ said, you shall know them by their Fruit. So, in other words, if you want to know if you're really saved, if you're looking for evidence in your children or assurance of salvation in your life or your kids' lives or even grandkids or others you're ministering to, the New Testament never says, well, look backwards and see if a decision was made somewhere in the past. If so, then you're, you know, you're confident, you're safe. You do have to make a decision, but that's never cited as the evidence of conversion. The evidence of conversion is always the presence of ongoing fruit. You say, well, what is fruit? Well, fruit mentioned in the context of the New Testament could basically be boiled down to this, hunger and thirst for God, hunger and thirst for God, resulting in a growing pattern of obedience in our lives, not a life of perfection, not even a life that's always going up hills in holiness. There are setbacks for true believers at times. But they get up they keep going that's the difference between a peter and a judas they committed the same sin the difference is peter repented and got back on track with christ judas did not so that is the evidence it's hunger it's thirst and it's follow through jesus says in john i mean in matthew 5 blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness all in the present tense who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness for they will be filled that's the that's that's the difference that's the evidence the assurance of salvation the fourth heart is the receptive heart although the first three types don't yield a lasting crop the heart response this heart response alone leads to saving faith verse 23 this is the one that produces a crop <clears throat> And Jesus says this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So in other words, the change may be slow, C.S. Lewis noted, always be careful when you're assessing someone's uh, sanctification and their holiness because you never know where they, you know, you don't know where they started. They may have started way past where you started. We have to be gracious. And that's why he said, sometimes, it may be a hundredfold, maybe, but the point is there's progress. It keeps going. And when you see that person months and years later, they are still growing in holiness. There's still a desire to follow Christ. So those are the four soils that explain so much in the kingdom and explain so much for our lives and God's sovereignty and evangelism and salvation. The summons this morning is pretty, pretty much a no-brainer. It's, it just comes right out of this text, and it's this: Am I the real thing? Are you the real thing? And you say, "Okay, what exactly do you mean? Are you a true disciple of Jesus, forgiven, justified, blood bought, reconciled to God, on your way to new heavens, new earth, or are you a counterfeit?" And again, go back to John Piper's words: Matthew has this unusual burden. Is an unusual burden about the dangers of false discipleship, and you see it in, in Jesus' sermons, but especially the way Matthew reports them, especially Matthew in, Ma, in, the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about that very famous passage we looked at a couple weeks ago where Jesus said one day they'll have people in, He'll have people in front of Him, and they'll say, hey, I preach good sermons, I cast out demons, and I did miracles. And Jesus will say, but I, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. And so there's this, this, there's this burden in Matthew to alert us to the danger of thinking we're saved when we're not. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may say, wow, that's narrow-minded. My response is, I'm just glad there's a way left. Knowing the deceitfulness of my heart, knowing the wickedness that dwells within me, knowing the selfishness and self-centeredness that I'm capable of, I'm just glad there's a way left. And Jesus is very clear, there are no other ways. Stanley Jones, missionary to India years ago, wrote The Christ of the Indian Road. He said he had a Hindu Brahmin come to him one day and said, look it, if you will preach that Jesus is a way, India will be at your feet. And Jones said, I, I can't do that. I can't do that because he didn't say he was a way. Definite articles used in Greek, he said he's the way, the truth and the life. He's not just one of many deities, He is, He says, take it or leave it, He's the only one. And it's our call whether to believe that or not believe it, but there's a lot hanging on the line on that issue. And look at verses 49 and 50, Jesus tells us what's on the line as He gets to the end of this particular sermon. We know He's at the end because in verse 53, we have that phrase, when He finished speaking these parables. That's Matthew's clue that... that This discourse is over, right? So this is his summons, really, to his sermon, verses 49 and 50. Here's what's on the line, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the Apostle Paul never mentions hell by name, 13 letters. Who's the hellfire preacher in the Bible? It's Jesus preach more about hell than anyone else. The meek and mild Savior. So, just to be clear, how do you know if you're saved and how do you make sure you're right with God? The Bible says three things. This is biblical terminology. Ready? First, I have to repent. Matthew 4, 17, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. I not only have to repent of my sins, I also need to repent of my righteous attempts to earn my own salvation. All that is is further evidence of my rebellion that I'm not willing to submit to a Savior. And so I not only need to repent of my sins, I need to repent of my righteous deeds that I'm hoping gain me favor with God. In other words, everything I do is sinful or tainted with sin, and I need to repent. Repent means, it's a Greek word, metanoia, it means change of mind, change of behavior, change of attitude, change of direction. That's what repentance means. That's Repentance. It involves grief, it involves sorrow, it involves contrition, it involves admission, but it also involves follow-through. There's no follow-through, it wasn't real repentance. Second word to make sure you write with God, believe. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Belief is all in. You believe the facts of the gospel, but you believe they apply to you. And then the evidence that someone has been born again after they repent, after they believe, is follow-through. It's obedience. And the New Testament is emphatic. Obedience doesn't save anyone. Good works don't save anybody. But good works there will be if somebody truly has crossed the line of saving faith. If they're born again, if they've been renewed by God and reconciled and been saved, there will be follow-through. There will be the presence of good works. It won't be unending. There doesn't mean they're not going to be sin, sometimes galactic sin. The issue, once again, do they get up and keep going? Is there still a hunger and thirst for God and contrition about what they've done and follow through? Are they consistent? Are you consistent? That's obey. Jesus says in John 14, whoever has my commands and, present tense, is obeying them this is the one who loves me. So, how do you know if you love Christ? You look at His commands, you hunger and thirst, you, you, you say, I, I, that's, I want that to be me. That's a powerful evidence of conversion. And then over time, there's consistent conformity and growing conformity. It's interesting Talk to people who've been Christians for decades. Sometimes it seems like the holier they are, the more aware of their own sinfulness they are. Also, it's just an odd juxtaposition in the kingdom. Uh, I want to point out one other thing. I pointed this out during Ecclesiastes series. The emphasis Jesus puts on obedience. The end of his life, Matthew twenty-eight. The last recorded words we have really of him in the Gospels. He gets his disciples together. And He could have said a lot of stuff, right? could have said all kinds of things. Remember my resurrection? Remember the cross? Remember the miracles? Remember, I mean, He could go on and on about all the different things. Remember I'm coming again? He could have said all. What was the last thing Jesus said? What was the last? In fact, I'm going to devote one more sermon to this at the end of the five, make it a six-part series for the five sermons. But what did He say? Go make disciples, baptizing them, and then He said something teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. That's the emphasis on obedience. The last thing Jesus focused His disciples on were His commands. And not just, go teach disciples my commands, that's not what He said. He said, go teach them to obey, teaching them to obey everything I said. That is the last recorded words of Jesus, was to go make disciples disciples make sure they're baptized, and then teach them to obey everything I gave you. Not to get saved, they're already saved. That's what a disciple then does and shows they are converted. And the very first command for any disciple is immersion under water. The Greek word baptism, it always comes after conversion, not before. Why? It's the evidence we're born again. It's a picture of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, and it's a public announcement to the world that you are now a Christ follower. It doesn't save you any more than a graduation ceremony saves anybody. You don't walk an aisle at a graduation and get your bachelor's or master's or doctorate unless you did something before that. All the ceremony is is to announce to the world, I did this and this is where I'm at now. So, here's the gospel as we close about obedience. I use this on occasion. I love this verse. John 14, 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commands and keeps them, I quoted the first part of it just a minute ago, this is the one who loves me. Here's the rest of it. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, but listen to this, and I will love them and show myself to them. There is the promise of intimate fellowship, of a love relationship with the living Christ through union with Him as we move forward in authentic saving faith. So I just close with a question. Do you know Christ? Are you the real thing? Is there any possibility you may not be or your children may not be? And if so, keep preaching the gospel to them. Keep preaching it to yourself. Let us be a church adheres to the gospel and is fanatical about the gospel, a gospel of both grace and truth. That is the kingdom of God. Father, thank You that Jesus didn't mince words and was so clear. Thank You for this sermon in Matthew 13 and this story about different kinds of soil. Father, all of us here have a choice in life whether to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved or not. And then it goes on to our children and grandchildren and those around us that we care about and love. Help us to be faithful evangelists both to ourselves, to those in our home, those entrusted to us. I pray we would see increasing conversions here. People coming to faith, getting baptized, going forth in discipleship, teaching others how to obey everything Christ commanded. Help us to be found faithful, a community of love and truth that impacts both our cities around us all the way to the ends of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and global name, amen.